Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we'll be asking how health research can be regulated in a way that protects patients without stifling science. Within the pharmaceutical industry in the UK, many of us have been saying for some time that there has been a challenge of getting clinical trials started. And we'll hear from some Californians who've come to learn about bioscience in Britain. Now more than ever, there's a huge focus on innovation. We can't ride that same wave that we've been riding. If you want the money, you're going to have to produce some interesting new science. That's what I'm seeing. I'm Clive Cookson and you're listening to FT Science. One of our regular studio guests is here, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the UK's Science Council. The other, my FT colleague Andrew Jack, isn't, because he's gone out to Haiti to report on the first anniversary of the terrible earthquake there. But we're delighted to welcome, as our special guest, David Gillen, who moved recently from Pfizer, where he was UK Medical Director, to Gilead Sciences, where he's head of international medical affairs. David has come to discuss a hard-hitting report on the regulation and governance of health research. The report says that bureaucracy and complexity are stifling health research in Britain and driving clinical trials abroad. David, you were part of the Academy's study group that drew up the report, both as an industry representative and to give the panel an international dimension. So tell us how you reached your conclusions. Well, I think it was a comprehensive analysis, Clive. I think the Academy uh, obviously consulted widely, and um, I think we had submissions from over 300 stakeholders, mainly in the UK. The working group met several times throughout the year and was uh, actively supported by uh, a very, very good secretariat who, who put the report together. The report was then reviewed by an external body. Were things worse than you expected? I think it wasn't a huge surprise to to me um, and to many of my industry colleagues. Within the pharmaceutical industry in the UK, several of us, many of us, have been saying for some time that there has been a a challenge of uh, getting clinical trials started. And um, the, the predominant challenge within that study start period is the challenge of NHS permissions or R&D permissions at, at uh, NHS sites. We obviously have to go through a very complicated process of ethical approval and of regulatory approval through the MHRA. And in addition, this very cumbersome and variable NHS permissions has really meant that the UK has struggled to be competitive in the arena of global clinical trials. I think the various research funders speak as one on this, don't they? You from industry, the charities, 
and government bodies like the Medical Research Council. Is there any difference or is it universal, this feeling in medical research? I think it is universal, Clive. I think, you know, I trained as a doctor here and I've been working in industry in clinical development now for over 10 years in the UK and in the US. And predominantly, I believe fundamentally that clinical research helps patients. It also helps in in the UK context, the NHS, and of course it has an aspect which is it helps the UK PLC. But I th- and I think generally that's agreed across the various sectors. Fundamentally, we know clinical research helps patients. Diana, you used to run the Association of Medical Research Charities. Does any of this surprise you? No, and I very very much welcome it. I think that charities found the inconsistency and lack of transparency of local ethics research decision making really quite frustrating but also there's been so much more collaboration between funders trials have become more complex they've had to become bigger they're very rarely focused just in England these days and so the system has needed an overhaul for some time and I suspect that if we can establish a single point of contact then the opportunity for international trials and collaboration also grows. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I think we should underestimate the steps that have been taken already. The NIHR, which is under the leadership of Sally Davison, has made a lot of strides towards improving performance. That's the National Institute for Health Research, (laughs) part of the Department of Health and the National Health Service. But I think this new proposal of of a research regulator is a further step in the right direction. Obviously, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating, but I think it's certainly a step in the right direction if the recommendations are taken up. It's a step in the right direction if it really does unify things. Of course, it's a step in the wrong direction if this new regulator is just turns out to be yet another layer of bureaucracy. That would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think that would that would certainly not be in anyone's interest, and I completely don't think that's the, the intention of the report. I don't think it's the intention of the government either, and I think this will be implemented by government because Andrew Lansley, the health secretary, certainly welcomed it and said he'd be implementing it. Ask a question about the patient input. I think I suspect that patient groups might say that it's been easier for them to access local. Um, research ethics and to influence clinical trials locally. Mm -hmm. They may feel that it will be harder for them to influence the decision-making at a national central level. There was a lot of patient representation on the working party. We received an awful lot of submissions from uh, patient organisations and AMRC, I don't know what the acronym stands for, but you can correct me on that one. Association of Medical Research <laughs> Charities. <laughs> that, that obviously was one of the submissions. And in any health research agency, of course, the, the voice of the patient needs to be heard and needs to be understood. I think the experience that uh, Mike Rawlins um, has brought to the formation of, of the National Institute of Clinical Excellence and the involvement of patients there is a model that we would need to ensure occurred during the formation of any research regulator. There was a patient representative on the working group who was at the press briefing to launch it, and he said he was flabbergasted by the delays. And I was also struck by the way Cancer Research UK said that on average it takes two years from announcing a research grant mm. to getting the trial started, whereas it should take two months. Just to get, just put that in context, when you're advocating for the UK in a global clinical trial... Most global clinical trials now are run competitively in that we are we have a target of patients we're trying to get into the trial and you know we will not if you like protect a, a country's 
patient input uh, in terms of numbers. So if we're slow at starting, we have less time to recruit. And there are several examples of studies in the UK that have not been able to recruit patients because of the delay in starting. The statistic that's been banded about and was mentioned again in this report is that the UK used to have 10 years ago, about 6% of the world's clinical trials in terms of the number of patients taking part. Now it has about 2%. Do you think, David, that we might be able to creep up again or have has a lot of it just gone to the Far East because it's cheaper? We have to be realistic about who the UK, if you like, is, is competing with in global clinical trials. And I think we need to really understand that our competitors in terms of getting clinical trials from the commercial sector anyway are more Western Europe and I think we should be trying to ensure that we are seen and perceived as a really active and effective place to do clinical trials in that context. Thanks David. I'd like to move on now. Last week I met up with an old friend from California, the multi-talented Moira Gunn who was visiting London in her capacity as head of biotechnology programmes at the University of San Francisco Business School. Moira is also a well-known US science broadcaster as host of the Tech Nation and Biotech Nation programmes on national public radio. She was leading a group of 10 master's degree students on a week-long visit to find out about bioscience business in the UK. I asked her to explain the purpose of the visit. Our focus on biotechnology, which is open to the MBA students and the master's in information system students and any of our professional degrees, concentrates on biotechnology. But all biotechnology uh, are global businesses. So while we are the world's largest biotech cluster there in San Francisco, we look at all the major clusters. And our first movement was here to the UK because of all the innovation that's going on. What's the view from California of biosciences in the UK? Innovation, innovation, innovation. That's what we see. We see a tremendous amount of science. We see a tremendous amount of science that we can understand. They do a great job here explaining what's going on, where they're going, and how they're doing it. And so, of course, we, we keep our eye firmly on, on the UK. Well, that's very flattering for UK Biotech. We've also got in the studio two of Moira's 10 students who've come over with her, Olga Levin and Kareem Michael Tahir. Olga, what's brought you on this group to London? Well, I work in the biotech industry for Genentech Roche, and we have a big facility out in Welland. So I was really excited to go visit them and also just get to know how things are run in the UK. I'm really interested. Kareem? I also work for Genentech, and my interest was to enhance what I already know about information technology and biotechnology. I wanted to learn about the bioinformatics uh, part of that. So, Moira, how healthy do you feel your own Californian or indeed your whole U.S. bioindustry is at the moment? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, we just have seen 10% of our publicly traded companies uh, fold in the last year. That was very difficult. We have seen no IPO starts of any remarkable uh, strength. And yet, the word on the street is there is venture capital money for the right 
reasons. We have seen some major investment in particular enterprises, which are well known, but the truth of the matter is it's it's hard to get money. This is a time in which you will take money, not at particularly good rates. You may take strategies as a biotech company that you would not do before, but the biotech industry is alive and well. It is still seeing growth in terms of the number of employees, but we're also seeing a, a, a tremendous support in sciences. We have not seen basic scientific research diminish at all. So it's still very strong. But again, we would we would love the good old days when money was a lot easier to come by. All good. How do you feel? You're within the industry. Now more than ever, there's a huge focus on innovation. We can't ride that same wave that we've been riding. If you want the money, you're going to have to produce some interesting new science. That's what I'm seeing and Kareem, you're going to be using computing IT to improve the industry's productivity, aren't you? That's correct. I'm hoping to learn a little bit more from the UK perspective how they how they're using computing and and doing the modeling in biotechnology. So, Myra, you're just starting your week in the UK now. Who are you seeing, and who are you looking forward to seeing? Well, we're starting with the London Center for Nanotechnology and many of their medical applications, which is fantastic. Um, We're going to be meeting with One Nucleus, which is the industry organization which covers London and also up in Cambridge. And uh, so we're meeting here. There's going to be a networking event with uh, uh, hosted by Mintz Levin. We're also going up to spend a day in Cambridge and seeing all the innovation there. And then, of course, we'll be going out to Oxford. So I think we're getting everyone as uh, on, on our tour. That was Moira Gunn talking to me last week on her trip from California. David, you work for a company that's based in California, Gilead Sciences, but you are working here yourself. How do you see the differences and similarities between the UK scene and the Californian scene? The UK has a really rich heritage in research and um, in experimental medicine. I mean, you know, John McMichael and Peter Sharpie Schaffer pretty much invented that as a discipline. So uh, I'm not surprised to, to, to hear that colleagues from California are coming here. I think that, you know, back to our previous conversation, I hope that some of the, the, the changes, that recommendations that we made in this report will really help that uh, fertile environment in the UK become more fertile in terms of doing more and more research. That would be my observation. I'm not surprised to see an initiative like this. In fact, I very much welcome it. It's one of the things we've been looking at is the research skills into business shortage in the UK that we tend to focus on training our our scientists to be researchers and not training up the business and finance awareness. And although you do need, I mean, I agree with the student, you need the good science to underpin the business, but it's actually ha- understanding the world of finance and how businesses work that those scientists also need to grapple with in biotechnology. I think business schools in the US are far more advanced in doing what you've just said and companies, science-based companies in the US, not just in bioscience but in physical sciences and IT are much, much, much more geared up to using their facilities. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week for more fascinating stories from the world of science and health. But now I'd like to thank Diana Garnham and David Gillen for joining me. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to 
ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.